Okay. Psalm 33, pertaining to David when he changed his face before Abimelech, and he let him go and he went away. I will bless the Lord at every opportunity. Continually his praise shall be in my mouth. In the Lord my soul shall be commended. Let the meek hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he hearkened to me. And from all my sojournings, he rescued me. Come to him and be enlightened, and your faces shall never be put to shame. This poor one cried, and the Lord listened to him. And from his afflictions, he saved him. An angel of the Lord will encamp around those who fear him and will rescue them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who hopes in him. O fear the Lord, you his holy ones, because those who fear him have no want. The rich became poor and hungry, but those who seek the Lord shall not suffer decrease in any good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the person that desires life, coveting to see good days? Stop your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to destroy the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cried, and the Lord listened to them, and from all their afflictions he rescued them. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and the humble in spirit he will save. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but from them he will rescue them. The Lord guards all their bones, not one of them will be crushed." The sinner's death is wretched, and those who hate the righteous shall go wrong. The Lord will redeem the souls of his slaves, and none of those who hope in him will go wrong. I'm struck by reading this again, uh, how much of the vocabulary of 1 Peter shows up in this. The, The people of God are called those who fear God. They're called the slaves of God. Um, They are the humble. They are the ones who are gentle, are the meek. Um, Peter's conception of, of what the community in Christ looks like is in sync with Israel's own calling as God's people. And um, this is just, uh, I'm not sure how to relate this to First Peter at all, but verse 21 shows up in John's gospel um, as uh, part of probably an allusion to the Passover lamb. And Jesus has already expired, and the soldiers come, and they break the legs of the other two on the crosses, but Jesus, they pierce. And John says, Scripture is fulfilled that says, not a bone of his will be broken. Um, Jesus, the Passover lamb, but also Jesus, the suffering righteous one, the one whose bones God protects. Well, um, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, sorry. Although there are chapter breaks here, it's It's really one long discourse in which everything seems to tie into what's come before. Since then, Christ suffered in the flesh. And I think by implication, since his suffering led to his glorification and exaltation above every power, arm yourselves with the same intention or the same thought. Intention is probably the the better translation here. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. Arm yourselves with the same intention so as to live for the rest of your earthly life no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. Um, this is also, I, I think things are 
confusing for quite a little period of time here, so I'm kind of waiting till we get beyond verse 6 <laughs> to, to get out of the fog. Um, this part is not so unclear. Christ's suffering and the glories that would follow. Peter says in chapter 5, I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is what the prophets longed to peer into when the Spirit of Christ in them prophesied the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Well, you belong to the story of Jesus. So since Christ has suffered and now entered his glory, you also arm yourselves with this intention. The rest of your earthly lives live not for human desires, but for the will of God. The first exhortation back in chapter 2 was to, to combat these human desires that wage war against your soul. Uh, again, we've been talking about enemies, even demonic enemies, but the battle is inside as well. Um, Peter has actually quite to, a lot to say about mind, soul, heart. Um, I think he really gets that the inner life of the human being is renewed by God, but continues to be the real battleground. Um, the spirit of Christ that dwells in us, to use Paul's language, is at war with the flesh. And uh, that's going to continue for the rest of your time uh, on earth. Um, this eschatological horizon is always right there. What Peter has to say makes sense only if the victory is already won by Christ and if when Christ is revealed, we share that victory. It's that hope that sustains this gentle persistence in doing good. John Howard Yoder has written quite a bit about Christian nonviolence. Uh, and in one book, he analyzes um, 20-some types of pacifism or nonviolence. But his own argument is that the, that the only kind of Christian nonviolence that makes sense to him is one that looks ahead to God's just judgment that is eschatologically oriented. Because the kingdom has come and is coming, Christians live in sync with that kingdom. Whether it works or not, um, Yoder, in a very powerful uh, phrase, says, Christians don't engage in nonviolent resistance for pragmatic reasons. It's because Christ is king and this is the life of the kingdom. He says the relationship between Christian obedience and the kingdom of God is not one of cause and effect, but of cross and resurrection. And I, I think that um, as I struggle uh, as a, a violent person uh, and as one who um, is frankly glad that we have military um, seeking to do justice, that we have police forces, I, I struggle with the call to nonviolence and what that might mean for me and my family. The only way it will make sense to me is if it's in obedience to the reality of Christ's kingdom and if the results are in God's hands and it ultimately doesn't depend on, on, on our faithfulness. So um, Peter uses military terminology here. Arm yourselves with this thought. Uh, interesting match to the earlier phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. Get to work. Now it's here. Take up your weapons. Arm yourselves with this thought. Uh, as, as, as Ben was uh, alluding last night, uh, quoting actually from Ephesians 6, uh, take up the armor, knowing that the battle is a battle against spiritual forces, including the desires that wage war in our own hearts. He looks back uh, at their previous life and says, you have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do. This is the most negative passage here about outsiders, beyond the fact that they're 
maybe persecuting you and putting you to death. But uh, <laughs> if the audience is, they used to be Gentiles, now they're God's people. The people outside are still Gentiles, and I, I think potential people of God, but still Gentiles, and their life is characterized. And now Peter is, uh, what Peter says here, you can find in Jewish writings and early Christian writings from the first couple centuries across the board. Idolatry and immorality, that sort of sums up the Gentile world. Living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Or the New English Bible says, you lived like them, them, in license and debauchery, drunkenness, orgies and carousal, and the forbidden worship of idols. Makes me a little nervous what we're going to be up to tonight. I'm, I'm convinced it won't be idolatry, but <laughs> how much carousing, I don't know. Anyway, you spent enough time doing this. It reminds me of Paul's vice list when he says, and, and you know, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been called as God's people. Um, this kind of separation from the culture, though, has, um, has a downside to it. People get upset. Uh, I've experienced this, you know, to a, to a small degree uh, as a teenager, not wanting to do things that I didn't think I should be doing, whether it was drinking beers in the parking lot of the high school or, uh, you know, joining my friends and toilet papering the principal's house or whatever it was. Um, that's a small taste of it, but, um, you know, there, there is a sense in which to, even to prescind from some activity is to pass judgment on it, and people notice this. They, your friends and neighbors, your former buddies, are surprised that you no longer join them in the same flood of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. They abuse you, but they will have to give an account. You, you are to be ready to give an accounting when someone demands it of you for the hope in you, remember that they're going to give an accounting too to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. So um, be courageous and take your stand and return blessing for the abuse that you're receiving. But a lot's at stake here for them as well. You know, this can be seen as a way of protecting ourselves. Well, God's going to get them someday. But it also might be a further inducement to witness you know, to the extent that living in certain patterns of excess just destroy our humanity, um, there is. I mean, I've seen it in the church. Uh, I've seen it in uh, outreach to, to people whose lifestyles are so out of sync with the gospel that comes with compassion because there's a humanity there that, that needs to flourish, that God wants to flourish, and that overcoming this addiction or that passion is going to allow them to live into joy. Um, John Wesley, his sermons have been edited and published now for a couple decades, and Albert Outler at SMU um, edited the sermons, but also um, studied the scripture texts and phrases that Wesley used. One of Wesley's most common phrases in his sermons is, uh, is happy and holy. And he gets this from the Anglican tradition in his time. And what he means by happy, we would probably call joyful. But the two go together because to be holy in Scripture is to flourish as a human being. It's not exactly the image I had of Methodists, the teetotaling, no card playing, no dancing kinds of people. But for Wesley, to be holy is to be happy. 
And because we want to be happy, we want to be holy. Uh, the, the quote that Ben read from C.S. Lewis about mud pies in a slum versus a holiday at the sea, I mean, that, that expresses the heart of it as well. God calls us to holiness because he wants us to flourish as human beings. That's also part of the hopeful witness, I think. Why didn't you do that? Why don't you join us? Well, not because I think you're terrible for doing that, but because, man, I just, I, I do a lot better as a human being by not engaging in that behavior. Um, I found something else that makes me a lot more happy and joyful. Um, we have, we have uh, some evidence. Uh, I just thought I'd read you a couple excerpts from, from snatches of text that we have from the ancient world. Um, you know, it would be one thing for these kind of misanthropic Jews, as they were thought, to keep to themselves. But when one of our buddies now suddenly joins this weird group and doesn't join in with us, that hurts a lot more, and that makes, that makes us a lot more angry. Tacitus speaks about Romans who became Jews going all the way to, to, through circumcision. He understands that by joining the Judeans, they have ceased being Romans, the earliest lesson such people learn, he writes, is to despise the gods, to disown their country, and to regard their parents, children, and siblings as of no account. You can't be both a Judean and a Roman. And in this period, it doesn't appear imaginable for Romans, at least, that you could be a Christ follower and a Roman, or a Lyconian, or a Galatian, or whoever else you are. You've disowned your family. So there is a, a late first, early second century work by Minucius Felix, a dialogue between a Christian and a Roman non-Christian called the Octavius, where the non-Christian accuses his Christian interlocutor. He says, you keep yourselves far from every entertainment, even from the most respectable ones. You go to no plays, take part in no parades. You disdain the public meals. You abhor the games in honor of the gods. The meat and wine offered on the altars you reject as impure. You don't adorn your heads with flowers, grow, uh, groom your bodies with good-smelling essences. You use spices only for the dead, and you don't even put a wreath on your graves. Uh, this is how the Christians are perceived. So from inside, you don't join them in the same flood of dissipation, carousings, orgies. From the outside, you guys... You guys are no fun. I mean, what, how can you look so down on our gods, on our public potlucks? I, you know, this is a, I, I don't know that it's as, as hot a button issue as it was at a certain point in the development of evangelicalism, but, you know, separation from the world versus engagement with the world. I guess if churches are hosting brewing nights at the church, it's, it's gone a long way from the, you know, we won't dance um, but I, I think this, cause, this calls for discernment, too. You know, what in Peter's day looks like carousing might, in our culture, not be something that dishonors Christ at all. And, uh, and I think, again, this is a place where community is so essential. We need to be able to call each other to account, but we also need to be able to, to, to press each other, um, to disagree in love, to be willing to challenge, but also to learn from uh, the kinds of freedoms that some of us have. You know, here, um, Peter doesn't do this, but, but we've got a whole canon. When Paul talks to the Corinthians um, about meat sacrifice to idols, he, he really tries to, to, to give them a big set of principles by which they can make concrete decisions. He said, you know, the main concern is love. 
you may have freedom and knowledge and ability to do something that will really cause a brother or sister to stumble. And I don't think he means you'll offend their sensibilities. I think he means you'll get them practicing something that's going to destroy them. If that's the case, you know, you've got to act in love. How could you destroy someone for whom Christ died, he says in Romans 14, for the sake of food or drink? But on the other hand, in both 1 Corinthians and in Romans 14, 15, he says, let's not judge each other. We have one Lord, and that's Christ, and he's the judge. And um, let each one be convinced in their own mind. So there's a fine line between differing practices and doing something that will lead someone astray. I can't see that it would be loving to serve communion wine at an AA meeting. It just wouldn't be, as much as it might be a really essential part of my practice. This Anglican church we've been going to is now renting space from a Seventh-day Adventist church. They don't need the church on Sunday. It's great. And um, they don't want us to have wine in the building. And we're in North Carolina. They don't want us to have pork products in the building either. That's a lot. But you know what? This church has gone to grape juice because will respect their conviction, and, um, and it's love that motivates this and not, not some other principle. So um, all that to say, just to open yet another can of worms with this, um, there is a way in which witness can be more difficult when we draw lines, and it really requires wisdom to know where ought those lines to be drawn and where do they not have to be drawn. Uh, and we, we, we stumble. We stumble and we make mistakes and, and we hopefully learn over time. I can remember as a, as a college student reading about some of the great missionary heroes, uh, you know, of a previous generation, the Bible translators, the, the daring people who crossed boundaries, and then, you know, wondering, was it really so bad for you to share a beer with the villagers in, in Mexico? Because you really offended them by not doing that, but you had a conviction you couldn't do it. You know, I don't know, what would I have done in their place? Wouldn't it have been a missional move to just join in with that? For me, yeah, let's go for it. But for someone else, I don't know. I don't know how you work through these things except in community and continuing to come back to this touchstone of, um, of love and of freedom. Well, uh, verse 6 is the other text that um, has an interesting history of interpretation. Just to remind you how we're getting into this, though, verse 5 says that Jesus, God, I don't think it's important to parse this out here, is the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. He's the one who's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, under whose feet are all the principalities, angels, authorities, powers, and all living and all dead will give an account to him. For this reason, the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. What is this? <laughs> what is this? Well, the fact that it's in the Revised Common Lectionary for Holy Saturday uh, tells you the way a, a large swath of the church has learned to read this text. Jesus really dies. He is buried, and he descends to the world of the dead. He breaks the gates of Hades. He tramples Satan underfoot. Uh, and he announces the good news to those in Hades. And there are differing interpretations. Does he preach only to the righteous, the faithful of the Old Testament times? Is, is he bringing Adam out of the grave, as the icon has it? 
Or is he preaching to all those who've died before Christ? And are they, in a sense, faced with an opportunity to trust or to reject the message? Could this be taken to underwrite uh, at least a, a hope that there might be yet another chance after death for those who've not heard the gospel? Um, all of these interpretations have defenders. There's also the interpretation that I don't favor, which is that this is talking about the same thing as in chapter 3, and this ought to be, again, an announcement to the spiritual rebellious angels, the, the rebellious spirits. Um, yet another interpretation is that um, those who were alive in our community and heard the gospel, but they've died, the good news was preached to them because even though they've had to suffer death before Christ has come back, they'll be raised in the Spirit. Uh, and the best analogy for this is 1 Thessalonians where, where Paul says to the Thessalonians, don't worry, those who've died are going to rise first. They haven't lost out. I think that's not a likely interpretation here because there doesn't seem to be any concern with people who've died before Christ has come back. In fact, it's, it's possible we might all die for the sake of Christ. Um, and so I tend to favor the interpretation that this is, um, again, illustrating that Christ is the judge of the living and the dead, that this is the pre-Christian dead uh, who will rightly be judged because they've heard the message even as we have. It may be even more narrow, and that is it's the faithful, um, because he speaks about them being judged in the flesh as humans are. Even though they were righteous, they died. I think of Hebrews 11. All of these, even though they received the promises, died in hope. But because Christ is the judge, their hope is not in vain. They will be raised to life even as we are. Um, so there's a range of options for you. Um, the, uh, the anastasis, the resurrection icon, that Ben was talking about. We really did not compare notes, but it's amazing how well he's laid the table for this. Um, the, the fully developed icon um, shows Christ. Uh, the gates of hell are under his feet. Oftentimes there are demons in chains in the, in the darkness, but Christ is at the center of, and he's got a hand on Adam and a hand on Eve, and he's pulling them out of the tombs, and behind them are the prophets and the saints of Israel. He's plundering Hades and taking them with him uh, into the kingdom. And, um, and that is the icon of the resurrection, which I think is really amazing. That it, it's a, a vivid way of saying what Peter says, you have been given new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And all those who've died in faith have been brought to life now in Jesus' resurrection. They, literally by being pulled out of their tombs, and raised with Christ, seated now in the heavenly places, um, and waiting with us in the presence of Christ for the resurrection of our body. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure I would preach on this text confidently, but I love the idea of reading it on Holy Saturday and letting the day interpret it. Or if I were to preach on it, I think I might talk about the icon. I might talk about... Um, Christ sharing our death. Uh, I might even go to a Pauline text, like he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for the one who died and rose for them. Uh, I might even go to Hebrews 11 and think backwards, as the early Christians did. Um, they saw no discontinuity between the faith of Moses or the faith of Abraham and the faith of 
Paul and Peter. Um, they hoped as well in Christ. Christ is at the center. Um, there are theologians way smarter than I am um, playing with thinking about time. How do we conceive of time? If we, if we think of time as a line, it's hard to make sense of some of these things. How can Jesus be speaking the Psalms? But if time somehow wraps around Jesus, Robert Jensen talks about the kind of double helix of the, of the DNA molecule. If time is like a helix that revolves around Jesus, then, yeah, uh, when Hebrews says that Moses chose the reproach of Christ over the riches of Egypt, he shares exactly the same faith that we do. And so, how is it that the faithful who died are not left out? Well, Christ preached even to them. And so, they will live in the Spirit as God does. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves, it says. Uh, be self-controlled. This is actually the same exhortation uh, in the beginning in chapter 1. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be serious. Focus on what really matters. Here, it's be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Um, you know, I'm just trying to make connections from this week. <laughs> learning to focus ourselves on prayer by praying the Psalms, watching Peter do that in his letter, thinking about the, the harmony in relationships, husbands to wives, but I think that's applicable to any place, especially where we may seem to be in a position of, of leadership or direction or, or power relative to someone else, that our own prayers are hindered to the extent that we don't honor others as fellow heirs of life. Um, Above all, he says, and returning to his exhortation in chapter 1, love each other intensely. Love each other intensely. Because love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to sin against each other. Um, this is where Peter begins to sound a bit like James. James ends with an exhortation to forgive sins and actually to pull one another out of sins. But love, love covers over so much that would fracture our community. So many things that would um, hamper our prayers and our witness. The answer is not justice, but love. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. That's interesting. I mean, there's been such a spirit of hospitality here. Uh, it's embarrassing, actually, to be your guest, to be treated so wonderfully. But, boy, are our local churches marked by hospitality? People write books with titles like The Lost Art of Hospitality. Um, and, you know, I, someone with a, a, a busy family of four kids and a demanding job, and it's, it's hard to make space to open our home for people. And yet, man, what a blessing when we do that, or what a blessing when we are subject to hospitality. It's, it's kind of comforting to know that way back then, people complained about offering hospitality. It was hard. Resources are scarce. Time is scarce. Um, but, boy, the early Christian communities depended on this, you know, to be able to be welcomed, to be safe, to be cared for um, by others in the community. So love is a nice feeling, but it's got feet to it here. It's going to look like hospitality. And that may look like much more than having somebody over for a meal. Um, there's no end to how we might imagine what hospitality could look like. There's a, a student from the Netherlands who's come just for the year to Duke, 
and showed up with a small child and, and wife and um, not, not as much of a plan maybe as he, he might have had or could have, um, but he showed up and uh, the local, one of the local Christian schools said, uh, we'll waive tuition for your daughter. We'd just love to have her in class this year. And, um, and someone else, uh, the pastor of his church, they said, you know what, we, we got a second car, but we don't need it. You can just have our van for the next six months. And story after story about hospitality, wow. Um, it's transformed the kind of experience they're having because otherwise they'd be stuck in a little condo trying to ride their bikes on busy streets. Anyway, um, I wonder if though we had to tell each other stories like this. I, I mean, I've heard a few sermons on hospitality, but most of the things that have actually affected me have been seeing or hearing about what people have done. Um, so I wonder where, where is there a place in our community gatherings for kind of sharing good, good stories, good examples like that. Um, the idea of stewardship shows up then in verse 10, and um, Peter shares Paul's view that the Spirit has gifted everybody in the community with some kind of gift for the common good. And here he, he highlights, I think, the, the kind of visible gifts. Whoever speaks should do so as one speaking the words of God. Whoever serves should do so with the strength that God supplies. But the point is that God be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him be the power and the Glory, the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I love when these writers just find out, have to sort of burst into doxology. Uh, it's great. We'll pick up the text uh, after the amen tomorrow. Um, for those of you who are, are not having to leave early, um, we're going to look specifically at Peter's counsel to those who have the role of elder. And so um, the, the best we've saved for last because Peter does, but I think Peter speaks directly to pastors um, here at the, at, the, at the end of the letter in chapter 5. So I have on the clock here 10 minutes until 11.30, so we could have some more discussion if you'd like, or if we don't have that much to say, we can break early for small groups. So we'll do small groups at 11.30 and lunch at 12.30. Oh, and sorry, just because I may forget, don't leave after question and answer. There is an announcement, so don't go to small groups until Scott has let you go. So I'll ask oh. you a question. That's great. <laughs> okay. It's great to serve because then you get to talk. Um, who was Christ preaching to uh, in the dead? Um, any any uh, reflections? C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce hmm. uh, helps me think of even if those who had refused before uh, got to hear in heaven, would they turn? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, boy. You know, I, Lewis is, uh, he's amazing. I, I just think his, um, what, what, one thing I love about him is the way his, his imagination is shaped by scripture and by theology. And he's just such a gifted storyteller. Um, but it's interesting that it, it tends to be the great divorce or perhaps the last battle in the Narnia series that have it made as much of an impact or more as some of his essays. Uh, which, you know, again, I'm, I'm not uh, burdened as you are or graced as you are with the task of preaching week after week after week. But I think about, you know, if anyone in the community needs a sanctified imagination, it's the, it's the pastor, it's the preacher. It's the preacher. Um, cultivate your imaginations, you know, in, in any way you can. And it's not everybody's primary gift, so I'm not needing to make anybody feel bad or guilty who's not an imaginative person. If you're not, like I'm really not, then find people who are and get their stories and read it. 
Um, but yeah, Lewis imagines that um, what, what I think is, is helpful to me about Lewis's way of looking at things is that he kind of turns it around. Rather than thinking of hell as something that God does to us, he, he really tries to take seriously, imagine what does it mean for God to create beings capable of responding in love, but also refusing love. And, you know, I don't think we ought to use mystery very often, but I'm pretty sure this is one of the places where we just have to at some point confess it's hard. we can't figure it out in a, in a neat package. How is it that our prayers are already an answer to God's prayer, but they're our answer, and that God's provenient grace, to use a Wesleyan term, seems to touch everyone, but not evoke a response in everyone. Um, I, I tremble to go where Calvin went to make it work out because it seems to me that it bumps up against Scripture. Sorry, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a tulip guy. Um, <laughs> but I also, I, I worry about the tendency to go the other direction to start congratulating myself because I'm a believer. I mean, we don't do that. When we're really worshiping, we're so conscious that we love because he first loved us that anything good in us comes from Christ dwelling in us. So how do we hold those things together? But, but Lewis imagines or tries to imagine that it's possible that we might say no to God so thoroughly, that we might misshape our humanity so completely that, that there's no desire for God left. So, you know, at the, if you remember maybe the end, at the last battle, all the animals pass by Aslan, and they look at him, and they either love him or hate him. And those who love him go into real Narnia, and those who hate him become dumb beasts. Or you've got the, the dwarves who've decided that they're going to play both sides. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And they end up in a stable, and, uh, and, and then the stable ends up in Aslan's country, but the dwarves are sitting in a tight circle. They think they're still in the stable. And, and you know, Lucy, can't you do something for them? Aslan, he says, oh, I'll show you what I can do for him. He lays a feast in front of them. And they start eating it. And they say, oh, my gosh, dirty straw and old carrots. And, you know, it's like they're stuck. I, what more can I do? That's frightening to me. Uh, in the great divorce, you have people just becoming more and more insubstantial, less and less real. Their voices fade. They become the masks that they've worn. Uh, I don't know. That, that at least uh, seems to open up a conversation with people who really struggle with the idea of, of judgment. Um, so Lewis ends that um, sermon, The Weight of Glory, has the great line about the holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased by saying, you, you meet no ordinary people. Everyone you meet will one day either be such a glorious creature you'd be tempted to bow down and worship if you saw him now, or such a horror, a a wreck of humanity that you only meet in your worst nightmares. Um, that gives a different kind of urgency to the gospel. Again, I think it brings together holy and happy. It says that, yeah, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's to be human. And the human, Jesus, has shared his life with us so that we could share his life. He's become really human so that we could, in him, be the humans that God wants us to be. Um, and the message is offered. I don't think it ever should not be offered, but there are consequences for not accepting it 
the consequences seem to be to walk away from what it means to be created human beings, to walk away from the one who loves us. Um, I don't know. Does God at some point do enough to turn around everyone, whether they will it or not? I have a friend um, who's written, uh, Jerry Walls, who teaches philosophy at Notre Dame, who's, who's written a very learned paper he sent me a couple weeks ago about why that just doesn't hold together philosophically. If, if God ultimately overrides our choice, then we're not free. I don't know. That's above my pay grade. I just know that Scripture says both that God's love is, you can't measure its height and breadth and depth, that it's offered to everyone. And that the scripture says everything is at stake in whether we respond or not. So, thanks. Oh, yeah. oh. <clears throat> I get kind of lost in this. I almost forget my own question. <laughs> um, I'm struck. I'm reading Dr. Blunt's book, uh, his commentary on Revelations, and I've been struck with the parallels between what he writes and what you've talked about today. The... Um, there is a lot of metaphysical discussion in both First Peter and in Revelation, of course. But it seems to be a polemic against Christianity and Christians blending in a call even to their own detriment to stand out and be different. And to me, there's great hermeneutical uh, message there that we can really apply today as American Christians standing out against uh, the religion of Wall Street. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts might be on that. Um, Russ has been mentioning a number of different times, both publicly and in, in some private conversation, that there's really interesting stuff going on with Revelation, um, both convergences and contrasts. Um, and you're referring to Brian Blunt's commentary on Revelation in the New Testament Library series. Um, and Brian and I used to teach Intro New Testament together at Princeton. He's now the president at Union Richmond. You probably all know this. But... Um, yeah, uh, in his, uh, his take on Revelation, especially these letters at the beginning, is that, um, that John, the seer, um, may be talking to Christians that look a lot like the Pauline Christians in Corinth, or maybe even these Petrine addressees. Um, that is, that in his view, they've compromised too much. He's against some figure he calls Jezebel. He's got another person who he associates with Balaam. The, the issues seem to be idolatry and food uh, and, and, and immorality, which may be literally or maybe just that association with idolaters are also immoral. Um, maybe the compromise that Paul has worked out with food sacrifice to idols is, too, is unacceptable to John. What it seems to do is opens up some space within the New Testament canon for there to be different contexts and different interpretations of, of how we ought to act. It, it may be that times have changed enough that Revelation is later, that it's in a different place, or maybe that you really do have voices in deep tension with one another in the New Testament. I mean, that's a, that's a problem we're all going to wrestle with on numerous issues. And I think the virtue of Dr. Blunt's commentary is that it kind of forces that issue when it comes to, to Revelation. If you, you put Revelation 13 and Romans 13 side by side, what do you do? Is government the servant of God or is it the beast? Peter seems to fall kind of in the middle there. It's a human creation to be honored but not feared. Um, so you're right. And this goes back to, to, to that earlier question about um, 
How might First Peter shape our moral imagination when it comes to social injustices that, that we may actually have some influence over? Um, Jeff mentioned during the break, you know, it's bringing the Gospels. Jesus' inaugural sermon is, I've come to proclaim release to the captives. Um, enlivened by the Gospel, we may find that, that the message we're called to proclaim is one of liberation. Resistance, liberation, accommodation. I think we're in the same moral quandary that, uh, that the earliest Christians were in, and our need is for discernment and wisdom. Um, Scott Patterson was saying at breakfast today, you know, the, the state is not really even perhaps the most, um, how did you phrase it? Um, the authority that has the most influence over many of my people's lives is not the state, but the corporation. The corporation that owns your time seven days a week, 24 hours a day, that tethers you with a phone, that at least the unwritten rule is if you're serious, you're going to be here after hours and on the weekends, and you know, you're called to be a mother or a father, a Christian, a member of a community. Are you a slave or are you free? What does it mean to be God's slave and so free with regard to everyone, including your boss? I mean, these are, these are very real tensions, and, and there are... I mean, there are no simple answers. Um, but again, it seems like discernment in community is the only way forward. And, and that may be the whole church. Uh, the, the preacher certainly has a leadership role um, in offering help, in offering guidance to people who are writing and thinking and wrestling with this. But, you know, I, I realize small groups aren't a solution to everything, but if we've got some brothers and sisters that we can, we can drill down to the specifics of our situation and get wisdom and counsel and prayer, I think that's, I think that's the, the most hopeful way forward. So, yeah, if we were to do Revelation, this, some of this would sound really, really different. Please. Oh, it's Jared. Great. Yeah. Uh, just real quick uh, to hear from you and your imagination. As you've been spending time in this epistle, First Peter, um, are there is there any particular uh, story of Peter from the Gospels that has kind of stuck with you as you've been in this letter? Oh boy! Well, so you know, to just anticipate tomorrow a little bit. I mean, Peter talks to elders as shepherds of God's flock, and I can't help but read that against uh, that that my favorite story in John's Gospel. You know, Peter fishing all night, coming up with nothing. Jesus is on the shore, feeds him breakfast, and then just gently but firmly reminds him of his three denials and gives him an opportunity to say, I love you. And Peter then is reduced to, to, you know, to being grieved, to, to being cut to the heart, but not, again, not able to give up on Jesus. Lord, you know, you know I love you. And the answer each time is, well, then feed my sheep. What is love for Jesus going to look like? It's going to be serve as a shepherd of God's flock, willingly, not under compulsion, not for your own gain. Uh, and the chief shepherd's going to give you a crown of glory someday because you've loved him in, in this calling. So yeah, I think, those, I think that story fills out um, what Peter is saying there. Um, Craig Barnes preached an amazing sermon at Princeton last year. All, all, they were all amazing. But this one, I think it might have been the opening of the, of the second semester last year. His sermons are online. You could find it. He, he talked about this text. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
He said, nothing will sustain you in ministry except the love of Jesus, love for Jesus. People are going to disappoint you. (laughs) They're going to frustrate you. They're going to hurt you. But if you love Jesus, you'll feed his sheep. So, yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Probably took away all my thunder for tomorrow, but that's all right. (laughs) Maybe one last question here, Jim. Oh, sorry. It's getting late. I'll I'll be real quick. Oh, do you have the mic? Okay, Jim, we'll we'll talk afterwards, Jim. Go ahead. Um, I hear the the term, uh, judge not that you be not judged, uh, a lot now. Uh, Two questions on that. (laughs) One is, is that judgment being talked about there, is that judgment of someone's uh, faith, whether they're saved or not saved, or is that judgment about behavior, about what they're doing at this point? And then the second part of that would be, how do we uh, uh, put the judge not that you be not judged together with admonitions to, uh, to admonish one another, to correct one another, to, to help build up the body. Hmm. I should have ended the question time one question ago. <laughs> How do we do that? Um, well, I mean, clearly they're they're both there in Scripture, right? So how do we hold together any of these texts that seem to be in real tension with one another? Um, if I can, can step away from the Sermon on the Mount and think about Paul again, and, uh, and Romans 14, 15, um, Paul is giving this community instructions on behavior. He's made a judgment about what is compatible with the lordship of Christ and what's not. And um, within the sphere of behavior that is compatible with life in Christ, he recognizes there's still a wide space. And I think the judge not comes to saying, all of us who belong to Christ will answer ultimately to Christ. It's not our point, our place um, to judge one another. But there clearly are places where that doesn't apply. Paul's writing the Galatians, and he's telling about calling Peter to account in front of the entire community because his behavior is not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. Um, how does he make those judgments? You know, we could talk about all the, the, the different ways. I, you know, if there's, if there's one book on decision-making in the church that I would recommend, it would be Richard Hayes' uh, Moral Vision of the New Testament. It's not an easy book, um, and it's not the last word on the subject, but it lays out at least a very clearly what the sorts of considerations are in coming to moral judgments, the way in which Scripture fills our imaginations as well as giving us rules and prohibitions, the way in which the traditions and the experiences of the church through time and our own use of of thought and reason come together in very complicated ways. Um, So I I would commend that to you. But I think think we've, we've abdicated a responsibility if we simply say, judge not, and we've taken on too much if we decide that we somehow are arbiters of, of every issue. Thanks.